Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Growing up, Aaron Beale's parents didn't call the local schools public schools. Not often, anyway. Uh, actually, no. <laughs> they like to call them government schools. They call them public schools sometimes, but there was a point to be made that these are government schools. Government schools were dangerous, which is why Aaron didn't set foot in them. He and his three siblings were homeschooled by their mom. She had a big desk like a traditional teacher. Staying home meant she could lead them in Bible study before they got on with the academics. But for Aaron, there was something darker happening too. There was the corporal punishment, the isolation he felt, all part of a movement designed to keep him far away from a place that now seems so benign. There was definitely a narrative that public schools were not just different and for other people, but that they were evil, that they, that they were places where uh, kids go to be indoctrinated by the state. I mean, that word indoctrination was frequently used to describe actual education. That word, indoctrination. Aaron's been thinking about it a lot these days. Not by choice, not really. It's just hard to avoid. That's good. Uh, following uh, woke indoctrination in our schools, that is a road to ruin for this country, and we're not going to let it happen in Florida. We will stop the radical indoctrination of our students and restore patriotic education to our schools. Aaron looks around and he can see how the terms of the debates the rest of us are having right now about what kids can learn and how they learn it. They were set decades ago by families like his, Christian homeschoolers. Yeah, it's just it's just laughable to me. The public schools are not indoctrinating. I was indoctrinated as a homeschooler. As you've probably guessed, Aaron made different choices for his own family. His kids now go to the public school down the road. His seven-year-old daughter was the first, nearly two years back. Turns out she is not the only one being educated. So my daughter is frequently coming home and telling me things that I never learned. <laughs> so she said things like, you know, you, <laughs> you, uh, you really should go to school because it, it affects your whole life. And, oh, and another time she said, I thought this was just profound. She said, you know, if you if you never went to school and then you had taught me and I never went to school and then I had kids and I taught them, at some point you just don't even know what you don't know. Today on the show, how the Christian homeschool movement that Aaron grew up in became an incubator for conservative ideas that have now gone mainstream. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. 
When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I first heard Aaron Beal's story from a reporter at The Washington Post named Peter Jameson. Peter is working on a whole series of stories on homeschooling and its connections to modern-day political movements. Peter says the ultra-conservative Christian homeschooling that Aaron got, it isn't what everyone gets, but the people behind it played a crucial role in entrenching a family's right to keep a kid home. Which is sort of funny when you think about how homeschooling became popular in the first place as a hippie alternative to regular school. You know, the 1970s is really when the modern homeschooling movement is born. And it begins as a force on the countercultural left. One of the pioneers of early homeschooling in this period is a man named John Holt, who had a whole philosophy which he called unschooling, which is still used by many American homeschoolers today. Babies come into the world extraordinarily curious, eager to learn, extraordinarily resourceful and competent at learning, that they are, in the most literal sense of the word, scientists. They do exactly what scientists do. They, They use the scientific method in making sense of the world around them. And then they get to a certain age, which may be as young as three, but in any case, the age of school. And this process is turned off by adults who think they are now going to direct and control the learning of these children. Who They treat them like empty receptacles into which they are going to pour whatever learning they think they ought to have. The idea was essentially that you're liberating children from any structure of formal education, taking them out of the regimented public school setting and allowing them to pursue their interests in a way that is both more fulfilling and more effective. That is kind of the origin of the idea of homeschooling. Now, what happens is that beginning late 1970s, early 1980s, this sort of template that's been created really out of kind of anti-authoritarian impulses on the left is discovered and embraced by people who have a very different ideology. So conservative evangelical Christians, you know, primarily Protestants in the United States at this point are becoming disenchanted with the public schools for a number of different reasons. You know, some of this stems from certain teachings about science, most notably the theory of evolution by natural selection. But This group comes to embrace homeschooling as a tool in sort of opting out of what they see as the broader secularization of culture, which they think is having harmful effects on their kids. And notably, the conservative homeschooling movement, they get organized, right? Like, how do they build a structure around themselves that will kind of keep homeschooling moving forward? You know, it's sort of hard to imagine this now, but at this point, point in the country's history in the 1980s, it was not at all clear if it was legal to homeschool your child in many states. The reaction of many public school administrators during this time was if a parent wanted to take their kids out of public school and begin teaching them at home, unless that parent was a credentialed teacher, 
they view that as a form of truancy, and this would often lead to enforcement actions and truancy prosecutions. So to fight back against that, there begins to be born this sort of large movement of legal and political activism that's aimed at both defending the rights of individual homeschooling families who may find themselves in trouble with their local school districts or with their state education officials, but also at actually changing the legal and regulatory landscape of homeschooling in the U.S. So these people descend on state capitals, they talk to legislators, they talk to state board of education officials, and by the close of the decade, really, at the end of the 1980s, homeschooling, you know, with the exception of a few holdout states, which give way and begin to allow the practice in the early 1990s, has essentially become legal everywhere. So it's a complete sea change in the attitude of the, of the government towards this practice during this time. There is one group that took the reins of this movement, the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. It's also known as the HSLDA. This is a group that was founded in the 1980s by lawyers, including Michael Ferris. Government only protects rights. It doesn't really create them. Um, and so God, as the Declaration said, created the rights and gave children to parents. Gave With, with the uh, gift of responsibility comes the authority to make decisions for your, ch- your children. That's really what parental rights means, is the ability to make decisions for your children rather than the government making decisions for your children. Michael Ferris is a conservative evangelical Protestant who begins homeschooling his kids around this time and really comes to believe that he and other lawyers as well have a calling for defending the rights of homeschoolers and in many cases actually expanding the rights of homeschoolers in states across the country. So HSLDA is a group that is very involved in, you know, representing parents who might find themselves in trouble with education officials in this period before homeschooling sort of is is fully kind of normalized and, and legalized. But it's also a group that becomes active in state capitals and in lobbying and organizing people to ease the regulations that do exist for homeschooling in many places and to push back very hard when there are periodic attempts, as there have been over the years, to more strongly regulate homeschooling or to have more direct government oversight. Are they philosophically neutral? So HSLDA, they are an explicitly Christian group, but they do make much of the fact that they defend homeschoolers of all ideological stripes. My understanding is that Michael Ferris, the founder of the HSLDA, he's pretty conservative himself. Like he talked about, you know, forming this Joshua generation of of homeschooled kids. And part of that was getting them involved with advocating for conservative Republican candidates for office. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. And, you know, in, in books he wrote, in articles he published, he's someone who, you know, since the 1980s has been talking a lot about what he views as indoctrination in the public schools, talks a lot about the need for parental rights. He's someone who's actually advocated for a constitutional amendment guaranteeing fundamental parental rights. So what this means is that, for instance, if governments establish laws dealing with, you know, it could be homeschooling. It could be something also that's not directly related to homeschooling, just dealing more with child welfare. Uh, 
that the government will have to prove a more sort of compelling interest in whatever law it's seeking to pass. So this is something that's been opposed repeatedly by groups advocating for child welfare, groups concerned about domestic violence and abuse. But this has been a cause of Michael Ferris's over the years. To this day, how regulated is homeschooling? In much of the country, homeschooling is not strongly regulated. There are a handful of states in which there are stronger regulations for homeschooling. Those regulations might include things like standardized testing, you know, some form of objective assessment to ensure that children are actually learning things at home. But in many states, those assessments either don't exist or they're very subjective. So it could take the form of something like a portfolio review where you just hire a consultant to come and look at the work you've been doing with your kid and they certify to the state that what you're doing is okay. Um, There are a number of states in the country where you don't even have to notify anyone, you know, state or local education officials if you decide to homeschool their child. So what this effectively provides for is no oversight or no regulation. You know, homeschooling is really the only way in modern society you can legally prevent your child from ever having contact with another adult. So when kids don't have contact with mandated reporters at their schools um, who might report child abuse or when they don't have contact with doctors, this can create situations where potentially very you know, dangerous and sometimes lethal child abuse is possible. After the break, one family's break from Christian homeschooling and a possible sea change in the movement. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. At the top of the show, you heard from Aaron Beals. He and his wife, Christina, both grew up in the world of conservative Christian homeschooling. And as Peter Jameson says, at first, they could never imagine leaving. So Aaron and Christina had both been part of this religious community in Northern Maryland. They did not know each other very well growing up. Um, They came together through a process called courtship, which is something that is used by some conservative evangelical Christians, mainly Protestants, where Aaron initially approached Christina's father, and then they entered into kind of a period of supervised and chaperone contact, which eventually led to engagement and marriage. And as part of that, they went through marriage counseling where homeschooling was discussed. What was the parenting philosophy they were being told to carry out? A core tenet of 
the raising of children in this particular corner of the conservative Christian homeschooling movement is a practice called chastisement. And what this is, is a form of corporal punishment. Hitting kids. Yes, it's hitting kids. Um, People who do this believe that they're following a literal interpretation of what they read in the Bible about using the rod. So book of Proverbs, withhold not correction from the child, for if you beat him with the rod, he will not die. How did Aaron and Christina feel about that approach? So they have conflicted emotions about it. You know, on the one hand, this is what they've always been taught was normal, what they grew up with themselves. Um, On the other hand, they were both people who were reluctant to hit their own kids. And, you know, this is something Aaron described to me, is that this was really kind of the first piece of the foundation of his whole conservative Christian worldview that he begins prying at when he's not comfortable with the idea of hitting his children. I just couldn't do it. And I, I at the time, I didn't even know why. It just didn't feel right. And it, I just was like, well, I'm going to I'm gonna put that little teaching aside and everything else is still okay, but that I'm just a little weird and different and I'm not going to do that. Yeah, he called it the first independent thought he'd ever had. Yeah, yeah. And when he begins to chip away at that and question that, it's sort of like the whole thing begins to collapse and he questions a lot of other things as well. I was told many times, for example, that if you cannot believe the Bible in Genesis, literally, meaning the earth is 6,000 years old and you know evolution and cosmology is all a conspiracy, basically. If you can't believe Genesis, literally, you can't believe any of the Bible in any way. That setup is very much like the Jenga tower. As soon as you find that science is actually real, you start to question everything because you were told to, basically. One wonderful thing about the Beals is that they they have a lot of documentation from earlier in their lives and earlier in their marriage that they've saved. One of them is an actual handout that they shared with me where they're scribbling notes to each other in the margins of this worksheet, which is explaining essentially how and how much to hit your children and saying that the use of the rod is for the breaking of the child's will. And, you know, Christina's writing notes to Aaron saying, you know, I'm really not sure I can do this. I don't, you know, I mean, the way she expresses it is, I don't know if I can be a parent. Um, Not, I don't know if I can hit my kids, but I don't know if I can be a parent because that idea of discipline your children this way is just so enmeshed in the idea of parenthood in this world they'd grown up in. Aaron and Christina did eventually have children. How did they first begin talking about putting their kids in public school? Because, as you said, there's lots of documentation they have. You have, you know, notes that Christina wrote to herself when she was a teenager, explaining that, like, one of the fundamental things she was looking for in a marriage was to be at home, to homeschool her kids. So I just imagine this is a radical shift for them. They, you know, were struggling a little bit to engage their daughter Amy in her homeschooling lessons. They suspected that perhaps she could benefit from some of the socialization that might come in a public school, that she could maybe benefit with her reading skills from professional educators. But at the same time, as they begin discussing this, there are all these ideas still lingering in both of their heads about what happens in the public school. What did they think happened in the public school? Well, so, you know, you have to remember that other than voting or the occasional 
HOA meeting. I, I mean, they just literally never set foot inside public schools. Uh, so they don't they don't know what happens in them. Their parents had taught them that these were buildings children should never enter. You know, the term often used in this corner of the homeschooling movement is government schools. So, you know, they had grown up believing these are essentially indoctrination camps that are attempting to subvert Christian families and kind of, you know, subvert what they were taught was the Christian heritage of the United States. And so, you know, they'd begun to drift away from that belief at this point, but it's still a very hard decision to make. I, you know, they'd grown up hearing that kids are, you know, taught to hate Jesus, that they're raped in the bathroom, that they'll be bullied incessantly, you know, just largely speculative threats that they were told children are exposed to in public schools. So it was a huge thing. You know, I, the, the story opens with this scene of Aaron and Christina gathering with these other parents who are saying goodbye to their kids in front of Round Hill Elementary School, which is a reputable public elementary school in Loudoun County, Virginia. But for Aaron and Christina, it has this entire just momentousness that other parents around them wouldn't comprehend that their, you know, their child Amy is going to be the first in two generations to go into a public school. Um, and they just, you know, weren't really sure how that was going to go. It's interesting because you spoke to Michael Ferris, the guy who founded the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, and you put to him the story that Aaron and Christina told you about leaving the homeschool movement for their own kids and it seemed to me like in his response, he was trying to play what happened here off as like, well, these are particularly conservative homeschoolers. And we find that, you know, most people are are sticking with it. Was was that your impression as well? Yes. I, I think that Michael Ferris's response to this, um, I mean, what he told me is that these people are the fringe of the fringe. Do you believe that? I don't believe that. I think that if you look at the history of the conservative Christian homeschooling movement, if you look at some of the central tenets of what these parents were saying, doing, how they were raising their kids, I don't think families like Aaron's and Christina's were all that abnormal. Now, what percentage of the movement they made up, you know, how many parents actually use the type of physical discipline that for instance, Aaron described to me, you know, that that's a question I can't answer. But I do not think either the practice of hitting your children with a rod or some of the larger ideology about public schools being evil. And, you know, beyond that, the ideology that it was the duty of conservative Christian homeschooling parents to raise children who would take the nation back for Christ. I don't think those were fringe ideas in the conservative Christian homeschooling movement. I think the record is very clear on that. I wonder if telling the story of the homeschool movement and people who left it, people like Aaron and Christina, I wonder if it tells you anything about where the current Republican rhetoric on schools is going or maybe how durable it is. Because the idea of parental rights is a snappy headline. But it seemed to me reading your reporting that <laughs> the story of someone like Aaron and Christina shows where that can go. And it sounds like it can go to a pretty dark place. I think that's right. And I think that that is what their story illustrates. And that is what I think 
in some ways what their entire generation illustrates, you know, at least this generation in conservative Christian homeschooling families like those that Aaron and Christina grew up in. I think a lot of the political power of the current rhetoric on the right about parental rights, about indoctrination in public schools, about, you know, the kind of contest of wills between public school administrators or teachers and parents on things like the gender identification of their children. A lot of this stems from a protectionist impulse that parents have, and that's something any parent can relate to. But what I think we see with Aaron and Christina and others who grew up in similar families is that that protectionist impulse, when it goes too far, they would certainly say is both you know, physically and psychologically harmful to the children themselves, but also, you know, maybe has a deleterious impact on just the broader social fabric that, you know, it, it's not a good thing for the country to have these sort of very insular ideological communities of people being taught to distrust and to fear difference and people different from you and what they might do to your own belief system. Peter Jameson, I'm really grateful for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Peter Jameson is an enterprise reporter for The Washington Post. Earlier, we spoke with Aaron Beals of Loudoun County, Virginia. A big thanks to him for joining us, too. And that's our show. If you're a fan of What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. You can track me down on Twitter. I'm at Mary's Desk. Thanks for hanging out. I'll catch you back here tomorrow. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.